This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible for free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, giant echidnas riding air-conditioned thorium cars. But first up, here's the news. Giant echidnas may still roam Western Australia. Australian megafauna from giant goannas to giant carnivorous kangaroos were thought to have become extinct around 10,000 years ago. However, in a drawer in the Natural Museum of London is a long-beaked giant echidna specimen that's tagged as having been collected in Australia in 1901. Until now, the only known habitat for a long-beaked echidna was in New Guinea, where it's critically endangered. Common short-beaked echidnas, or spiny anteaters, grow up to 6 kilos and 50 centimetres long. Western Australian giant echidnas used to grow up to a metre long and weigh up to 30 kilograms. New Guinea giant echidnas grow up to 16 kilograms. Echidnas are one of the two monotremes in the world. They're mammals that lay eggs with young that hatch in their pouch and suckle milk until they're big enough to leave and enter the nursery den underground. The other is the platypus. They have large claws for digging and a tiny toothless mouth. Male echidnas have a four-headed penis. During mating, only two heads at a time grow erect and release semen into the female's two-branched reproductive tract. Each time it has sex, it alternates heads in sets of two. Two heads are spare. When not in use, the spine-covered penis is retracted inside a prepucial sac in the cloaca. In the mating season, males form lines up to 10 echidnas long. The youngest echidna trailing last that follow the female and try to mate with her. During a mating season, an echidna may switch between lines. This is known as the train system. Two weeks after mating, a single fertilised egg, about 1.5 centimetres long, is implanted in the mother's rear-facing pouch, where it's held for 10 days before hatching. Rear-facing pouches mean that burrowing doesn't fill the pouch with dirt. Baby echidnas are called puggles. They stay in the pouch for two to three months before being expelled into the den. Puggles will stay within their mother's den for up to a year before leaving as an adult. Echidnas curl up into a ball with their spine sticking out when they feel threatened. Their predators include wildcats, foxes, domestic dogs, snakes and goannas. All of which might stay away from a giant echidna. 
The handwritten tags at the Museum of London say the specimen was collected at Mount Anderson, about 90 kilometres southeast of Derby in Western Australia. The surprising thing is that the West Kimberley is quite arid, whereas the giant echidna habitat in New Guinea is heavily forested. This means it's likely the New Guinea and the Australian giant echidnas have different gene pools. Evolutionary biologists from the Museum of South Australia will be recruiting farmers in the Kimberley to help them collect echidna droppings. The DNA from the droppings will help identify any hidden giant echidnas that are still around. Indigenous women from the Kimberley say that the giant echidna was hunted only two generations ago. Australia will be a more interesting place if they're found. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Vahid Vakilraya is a mechanical engineer at High Air Australia. He's a PhD student at the University of Technology, Sydney. In the last 11 years, he's been working on clean energy air conditioning systems. He's currently working on a solar-assisted air conditioning system that won him honourable mention at the Consensus Green Tech Awards. We use lithium bromide because lithium bromide is able to produce cooling when it's mixed with the water. It is a chemical procedure. When we reduce the pressure around zero, is 0.23 bar is the pressure in the chamber, uh, in the absorber, then the water will be boiled in 20, 22, 23 degrees of Celsius rather than 100 degree. So the lithium bromide and absorb heat from the water actually, and then the water temperature cool down and the water become cold, and this chilled water goes to the uh, cooling, uh, I, I mean air handling unit or fan coils to be used for the purpose of space cooling. And then now the lithium bromide and water are mixed together. We need to separate them. As I said, we need heat for that purpose. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's a lot clearer. So it's a chemical reaction it's of the lithium bromide with yep. the water that yep. cools it down. You can keep recycling the lithium bromide by heating the water to separate it. Yep. You can just keep on reusing that over and over and over to re-chill the water. The problem for this system is when the sun is not available, the system can't work because we don't have any storage. But during for the commercial buildings or industrial buildings, which normally they work from 8 to 5, 6, and we have sun during this time, then the system can work perfectly and uh, we don't have any other source of energy like gas or electricity for the uh, backup system because backup system has been removed and then we can save energy more than 90%. The only uh, stuff which uses electricity are three pumps on the chiller, chilled water pumps, cold water pumps, and hot water pumps, cooling tower fans, and fan coils fan. That's it, and then we can save energy around 90%. And the greenhouse gas emission reduction would be around 70%. So what's the solar absorption part of it? How does solar absorption cool things down? to regenerate all the 
uh, lithium bromide because we use lithium bromide for the chiller then we use we need heat this heat can come from any source of energy can be gas can be electricity in this project we use only solar and for that because our chiller is single effect means we have one generator one absorber we need the temperature around 80 degree of celsius which solar collector will be able to provide that temperature for us if we can design it properly so in this project we are using the vacuum solar collectors around 31 square meter is the area of the collectors and these collectors is uh, able to provide that temperature for us but the disadvantage of the solar system is that when the solar is not available the sun radiation intensity is not enough then uh, we need to have a other air conditioning system because the chiller automatically will stop but the room is still call for cooling so another air conditioning system can help us and as soon as sun is available or the hot water temperature is sufficient again the absorption chiller automatically start working and the second air conditioning system will stop the payback period of the solar absorption chiller is about 12 years because the capital cost and initial cost of the system is high but that's due to solar vacuum collector actually because the chiller is chiller cooling tower is cooling tower but the solar vacuum are the most expensive part of the system but the system can reduce electricity and greenhouse gas emission then we have to think what we are looking for we are looking for uh, environment electricity and i think this is the government task to reduce the solar collector price so that the people can easily use it Lithium bromide salts mix with water in a chemical reaction that chills the water. The cold water is used to chill the air in the room by pumping it around in grooved pipes. 30 square meters of vacuum solar collectors on the roof heat up to 80 degrees Celsius during daylight hours. And this heat is used to boil the salty water to separate the water and the salts so they can both be reused in a closed cycle system. Electricity from the mains is used to drive the pumps. The steam is condensed back to water and the salts are reintroduced to react again and chill the water for pumping to chill the air to cool the air in the building in a cycle that continues as long as the sun is shining. In contrast, a home air conditioner is usually a split system. A working fluid is heated by air in the room, causing it to evaporate and cool the air. A compressor and condenser on the outside of the building compress the gas back into a liquid, squeezing out the heat. In this way, heat is pumped from inside to outside, from the evaporator to the condenser, in the same way as a refrigerator pumps heat from inside to outside. Who do you see as the customers when you've got this system ready to go? Yeah, well, this system is particularly for commercial and industrial rather than residential, but absorption chillers or any kind of central cooling system are good for high-rise building or commercial and industrial applications. but this is not the novelty of our work because this is already uh, patented and this technology is from many years ago uh, the only thing is we are using the uh, solar and in our heat exchangers let, let's say uh, evaporator condenser generators and absorber we are using the internally grooved pipes rather than the normal pipes so the tubes we are using are externally internally uh, grooved so the turbulent uh, heat transfer always is better and then we would have more uh, efficiency and more heat exchanging in every 
uh, heat exchanger, and then we can increase the coefficient of performance of the system, which we call it COP. The coefficient of performance, or in uh, one word, efficiency of the system in our solar absorption chiller is 0.725. Normally, the absorption chillers in single effect mode, the efficiency is between 0.6 to 0.7. We, we can increase a little bit the efficiency of the chiller by using that growth pipe, which we did. And so what's next for you? Uh, you're, you're still developing the product? It's not on the market yet? So we are doing currently is to develop the evaporative cooling system so that increase the efficiency in hot and dry climatic condition and make them able to work in humid and semi-humid area and uh, still maintaining the energy consumption of them because the energy consumption is very low. Uh, so we have three kind of air conditioning system from five years ago, I start working on them. As a result, I understood that the solar absorption chiller is a very good system, but is not reliable sometimes, can't work in uh, some situation, can't work in some climatic conditions, the initial price is very high, and we need uh, a big area for installation. Let's say for a six kilowatt absorption chiller, which is our project, we need 31 square meter of the solar collectors in Sydney climatic conditions. And 31 and six kilowatt cooling actually is enough for, let's say 50 square meter. So if we have the 50 square meter of any building, then the six kilowatt is enough, but 31 square meter of that area, let's say roof or wherever, is needed for an installation, which is a lot and sometimes it's not possible. So a lot of limitation uh, for this system, but for any reason, if we can install it, then the amount of energy saving uh, will be considerable. And the second system is, as I said, evaporative cooling system is a hybrid cooling system in which we are trying to cool down the air sensibly before it goes to the evaporative pad. And then the final stage of cooling can be done in the evaporative pad and the air quality then will be appropriate for the people because we have the uh, definition of comfort condition. According to this definition, we need to consider actually temperature, humidity, air velocity uh, inside the room. And uh, there is an index for comfort condition actually uh, predicted mean boot PMV. Whenever it's between minus one to plus one, then 75% uh, of the people will feel comfort. Whenever it's between O minus, minus 0 0.5 to plus 0 0.5, then 90% of the people inside the building uh, feel comfort. Simply speaking, the comfort temperature is between uh, 20, 21 to 25, 6 degrees of Celsius, and the humidity between 40 to 60. Majority of people feel comfort in this range of humidity and temperature. The evaporative cooling system in uh, hot and dry climatic conditions sometimes is able to provide that range of temperature and humidity, not all the time, and in the semi-humid and humid area never can bring that uh, comfort for us. What inspired you to solve these types of problems with air conditioning and the environment? Well, uh, I like air conditioning, and I like environment, and I like green environment. And I think Australia is a green environment. The society is very green. When I arrived here, I received my electricity bill for three months. It was 2010, and it was summer, sorry, winter. After three months, I received my electricity bill around $750 because I was using the electrical radiator all the time. 
and I didn't know about the price of electricity in Australia. As my background is HVAC, I was thinking that uh, to work about energy efficient HVAC systems. Yes, still in Australia, electricity price is very low, but the bill is one thing and environment is another thing. I like to work on the area that makes system user friendly for the people and uh, make it energy efficient while maintaining the environment green and clean. Well, Vahid, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your time. That was Vahid Vakil Rawaya, working at the High Air Company in Auburn, Sydney, to air condition Australia in as clean and green a way as possible. Perpetual motion from thorium? How does never having to fill your car with gas again sound? By simply replacing your engine with a system that runs on thorium, one of the densest materials known to man, you'll only need to refuel once a century. The people with shares in thorium mining never stop talking up their stocks. A friend on Facebook posted an article from Mashable about a thorium-powered car that would never need refuelling. This instantly raised the red flag of perpetual motion and the red flag of anything to do with thorium. Thorium is a radioactive material that needs to be transmuted into uranium by heating it with a lot of neutrons from uranium or plutonium before it's a useful fuel for uranium nuclear reactors. It doesn't fission on its own. You breed uranium from thorium by bombarding with neutrons until it transmutes like the alchemist's dream of lead into gold, only with a side order of nuclear waste and a risk of nuclear disasters and proliferation of weapons. Uranium nuclear reactors are not suitable or safe for use in cars. There's no other known way to make energy from thorium. This is a shame because there's three or four times more thorium than uranium in the Earth's crust, and it could all be transmuted into fissionable uranium. When you dig up uranium, only seven-tenths of a percent can be used in a nuclear reactor. That makes uranium quite expensive to mine and process. There's a lot of interest from investors in finding ways to commercialise power from thorium. However, there are no commercial nuclear reactors using thorium as a feedstock, although there are designs in development for them. Sadly, this interest means that most of the press releases and articles that come out praising thorium are dubious at best. A company called Laser Power Systems have put out interviews promoting a concept car that looks like it's out of a Batman movie. It looks very cool, but completely impractical. Fortunately, they're not exactly suggesting nuclear reactors for cars like in the old Batman TV series. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. You're ready to move us. Instead, they claim to be making a laser from thorium. Currently, the company experiments with small bits of thorium to create a laser. The beam heats water, produces steam, and powers the mini turbine, thereby producing energy. A laser produces coherent radiation from light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, LASER. There's a paper in Physical Review Letters from 2011 suggesting that it may be possible to make a gamma-ray laser from a crystal doped with thorium. The paper is titled, Proposal for a Nuclear Gamma-Ray Laser of Optical Range. This can't be what they're using for the car for two reasons. First, it's never been built. It's only a proposal for a thorium-doped crystal gamma-ray laser. Secondly, it's a gamma-ray laser. Gamma rays are not ideal to heat water. They tend to pass straight through 
and fry people in the street, or turn them into the Incredible Hulk, depending on how angry they are. However, they admit that their device doesn't actually produce coherent light, which means it's not a laser. They say their thorium not laser will heat water to run a steam turbine in the car. Putting aside that there's no thorium lasers capable of heating water to run a car, what would power the laser? There's no self-powering lasers. They need some light to stimulate the laser process to make more light. Unless they mean to use a nuclear reactor to power the laser to heat the water? In the small print, there's a disclaimer where the company admits they aren't designing nuclear reactors for cars and that nobody is. In all these articles about thorium, they talk about how dense thorium is, as if denseness had some connection to anything, when it's meaningless. You might as well say the colour of an element makes it more suitable for cars. Could they be trying to hijack your vague memory of the phrase energy density? which is a description of how much energy is in a chemical fuel when you burn it. Hydrogen is more energy dense than petrol because for a similar mass of hydrogen, you get more power when you burn it. However, thorium can't be burned as a chemical fuel, so it has zero energy density, the lowest there is. Comparing the amount of energy you could get from turning thorium into uranium and then using it in a nuclear reactor to the amount of energy you get from burning petrol of the same mass is comparing apples to oranges. Especially when you're admitting you're not putting a nuclear reactor into the car. It's not back to the future. But wait, another article in the thorium-powered car says they shoot a laser at the thorium, which gives out more heat than what's put in, which is used to heat some water to drive a steam engine. And the steam engine is used to drive a generator to provide electricity to drive the car. At the front end, you need some power to drive the laser, and they don't say where that comes from. At the centre, you need thorium to give off more heat when you hit it with a laser than the laser puts into the thorium. And this just doesn't happen. There's no known physical process that would achieve this unless they're using the laser to start up a nuclear fission reaction in the thorium. In which case, we're back to nuclear fission reactors in cars, which is crazy. This hasn't stopped Cadillac, a few years ago, sending out press releases about a thorium nuclear-powered car. And in 1960, Ford Motors put out an ad for a nuclear concept car, the Nucleon. Neither were ever built. 1960s, the Ford Motor Company was eager to show the public it was on the cutting edge of innovative design, and actually toyed with the notion of building a nuclear-powered engine. The Nucleon, as it was called, would have come complete with its own plutonium pod. But questions of where to refuel and the potential dangers of having a rolling nuclear reactor kept the Nucleon from making it past this three-foot model stage. My Facebook friend pointed me at some research by the University of Huddersfield, who are developing an accelerator-driven subcritical nuclear reactor that uses thorium. They have a laser powered by a power station that excites electrons in a helium gas to form a plasma, that is, an electrically charged gas. The plasma accelerates electrons to hit a lead target. When the electron beam hits the lead, it generates neutrons. The neutrons transmit the thorium into uranium, and then provide the kick to cause a nuclear reaction in the uranium. However, the nuclear reactions are subcritical, which means they don't form a chain reaction. 
He claimed it was the heat from this nuclear reaction that turned the water into steam to drive the turbine to make electricity to drive the car. So it still ends up being a nuclear-powered car, except that it's dependent on the laser being powered externally, and a subcritical nuclear power reactor that hasn't been finished yet, that isn't expected to be finished until 2025, and which has to somehow be miniaturised to fit into a car. No government in the world will legalise civilian cars running their own nuclear reactors, even if it's subcritical. Of course, most potential investors miss the fact that articles about the thorium-powered car call it a concept car. Concept cars don't have to work, because they're PR, not projects under development. Concept cars are fantasies from the pages of graphic designers, used as public relations promotional material by car companies to get into the news. They may as well claim to run the cars on rainbows. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. If you're doing something sciencey and cool, tell me the story and please send me the photos. Like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, on the Community Radio Network and 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from www.audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL...
The first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Thank <laughs> you.